A number of years ago, there was a study that was done at Princeton uh, University, and particularly in their seminary, part of the education that they offered. And they took 40 young ministers, and they divided them into two groups, and they began to teach them one of two topics. One group was given this basic topic, we want to explore with you the career opportunities that are available to you as a seminary student. The other group was given the parable that we're going to look at this morning in Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. That's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so this second group, the ones that were given the parable, were particularly given this parable with an eye towards how does it fit into our lives today. Now, in the process of this psychological study that was being done, of course, they didn't know that they were subjects of this particular study. But uh, they took those two groups and then they further divided them into three as they gave them this piece of information. We want you to take the topic that you just studied as a group and we have groups that are waiting for you spread around the campus to go and speak to them about that topic. Now, they were told that it was to test their ability to do extemporaneous kind of speaking. In other words, how fast can you think on your feet? So, take what you just learned, go to this particular place on campus, and give a talk to a class there about what you know based on what you've learned here. Now, in those two big groups, they further divided them into groups of three. And those three groups were tied to the time frame that they had to get over there. One group was, said, was told, you have about five minutes before you're to be uh, on, so to speak, and so you have five minutes to get over there. The second group within the two groups, they said, you are supposed to be on right now. You need to make haste and get over there. The third group was, you're five minutes late already and you need to get over there in a hurry. Now, the study was particularly tied to how they would respond well, let me rephrase that. How practical was their education and their faith, to be exact? You see, what the people didn't realize is that part of this study planted an individual outside of the building that they were all sitting in, and every one of those theological students had to pass by this individual who was outside. By the way, it was five degrees outside, a little chilly. He had no coat on. They had him just in the alleyway so that as they exited the building, they would have to pass by this guy. And he had no coat on. He was leaning over a dumpster, pulling food out of it, and coughing violently. The study was to see, really, if they would stop and help the guy as seminary students. Of the 40, only 16 offered any kind of help. And the majority of the 16 that offered help to this guy who was planted there, those 16 didn't stop to help him. They ran into the building because they were late already. They ran in there and they said, hey, somebody might want to check on the guy who's outside. Now, what does that tell us about us? The sad fact is that those seminary students... We're going to eventually finish there, and most of them would go out and be placed in churches. And their lack of in, what's the right way to say this? Their lack of investment 
in the needy person was going to become contagious in their churches. How are we as a people when it comes to ministry? Now, the, the, the ongoing mentality in churches these days seems to be that we hire ministers. We'll go out and we'll find somebody who seems like, before we get to know them anyway, it seems like they probably could be good at doing ministry. And so we put them on the payroll and we put them to work. My question to you is, is that a biblical point of reference? And my answer to you is, not entirely. Luke chapter 10, we come to this passage today. And it is uh, now helping us with our fourth point of purpose. Now, we've been looking at this as we go into the new church year. I look out here and I see all of these young people, teenagers, children, and their faces are aglow because they're so excited that school starts tomorrow. (laughs) Teachers are out there going, oh, wow, school starts tomorrow. But mothers are going, yes, finally I made it. (laughs) As we come to this part of the year, Today was promotion day in Sunday school. We start our new church year on September the 1st. We have committees that are being formed and we're doing all kinds of stuff. And I want us to pause in the midst of all of the hoopla of the season to make sure that what we do is on purpose. And I don't mean that we're intentional about it, although that certainly needs to fit, but that it is on point when it comes to what our purpose is. So today we come to this fourth point of purpose. Now, we've listed these in, with a letter E because it makes it easier for us to remember. What was the first one? This is a test, all right? Otherwise, I'm going to have to just go back and keep re-preaching the same sermon until you get it. Exalting the Savior. We are about worship first. Secondly, ties hand in hand with that one. What's the second E? Equip the saints. The third one, this was last week. This should be easier to remember evangelize the lost. And now the fourth one, you have that one for us, Spencer? The fourth one is we quote our purpose to be the promotion and advancement of Christ's ministry throughout the earth. The E part of that for us is extend the ministry of Christ. But what does that mean, really? How do we do that? Really, I want us to go to this passage now in Luke chapter 10. It's a very familiar parable. Most of us could probably sit here and give the basic thrust of the whole story, maybe even get all the details right, but let's work through it together. I want to highlight a couple of things as we go. So verse 25, Luke chapter 10, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, that is Jesus he's talking to, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself... By the way, there's a whole sermon in those few words... When we get tagged and we know we're guilty, defend, deflect, and justify. And that's what he does. Desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? A nice deflecting kind of question centered in 
the theoretical part of life. Jesus will have none of that. And he says to him, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers. And they stripped him and they beat him and then they departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that same road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now let me just stop and let's talk about the priest for just a second. The way the... Jewish sacrificial system worked. It was limited to a particular tribe of people who could be the ones offering the sacrifices and working there. And so that's who this guy was. He was one of those insiders, the religious uh, intelligentsia, if you will. By birth, privilege to be able to work in the temple in that particular way. Even though he lived out in the surrounding countryside somewhere, when his rotation came up, they would call him to Jerusalem. He would go and he would lead out in the worship by offering these sacrifices. And he's the guy, the one who is closest to the work of God in that society. He's the one first who sees the guy who's beat up on the side of the road and he moves to the other side and he makes his way past Verse 31, no, 32. And so likewise, a Levite. Well, let me stop before we go any further and talk about this guy. He also is from that privileged group of people by birth, but he's the one who's not given the responsibilities to do the sacrificing. He's the one in charge at the temple to make sure that everything works according to the way it's supposed to work. The guy with the list checking it twice, making sure that the air conditioner... Okay, now they didn't have it. This is us now. He would be the guy making sure that the air conditioner is working. He's the guy making sure that all of the guitars and the instrumentalists are all ready and in their place at the right time. And he would be the one with his checklist to make sure that somebody didn't pronounce a word incorrectly. The smart aleck religious guy. That's what I'm talking about here. So the Levite, the one who had it down to a T, how you're supposed to do this thing called worship stuff. And he was coming, it says. And when he came to the place and he saw the guy who was beat up on the side of the road, he also passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan. Now, I'm going to stop for a minute and make sure that we get it with Jesus here. The Samaritans were a group of people that any good Jew would have no use for. They were half-breeds. They were the ones who were... Uh, held at arm's length because they weren't nearly as uh, with it, as insider as a Jew would have been. They're the ones who had circumvented God's plan, and they were the ones, therefore, who needed to be eternally judged for that. They were the ones that the Jews referred to as dogs in society. And that guy, he's making his way. It's interesting that he would be there in the first place. But he follows along this priest and this Levite, the ones who were the religious in crowd, the guys we would expect most to reach out and help this other one. The Samaritan is the one who comes by. As he journeys, he comes to where the man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion, it says. And he went on and he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus now turns back to that lawyer, the legal guy, the scribe, the one who knew all that there was to know about the ins and outs of God's law. 
And Jesus looks to him and he says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the one who fell among the robbers? And before we answer that, I want you to notice what Jesus has done in the full switch of the question. The guy hoping to justify himself says, and who is my neighbor? A theoretical discussion, how many angels can fit on the head of a pen kind of thing. I don't really care about the answer. I just want to deflect my guilt. And Jesus turns it and he drops it right in his lap. And he says, which one is a neighbor here? And he says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus zinged him and said to him, you go. And do likewise. A familiar passage. We, we know the story. But one of the problems with these kind of things is when we know the story, we often step away from it without really internalizing what the story is intended to do. There is a particular verse and actually a word in a verse that rises above the landscape of this particular parable. Verse 33 helps us see this. One more time, but a Samaritan... We might put parenthetically, of all people, a Samaritan? Really, God? But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had, and here's the word I want you to get, he had compassion for him. This is an interesting word, compassion. Several parts of it need to really resonate with us, and we need to really make sure that we wrap our hearts around what this word means and why Jesus uses it where he does here. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to be in central Louisiana. Now, I've been in Louisiana before. I've never driven around central Louisiana, okay? One of the members of our church, mother passed away, asked me to help with the funeral. And so I went to, now in Texas, we, okay, let me rephrase that. In West Texas, which is where I grew up, the name of the town is Natchitoches, but I understand in uh, Louisiana uh, wording, it's uh, Natchitoches, right? You just need to understand my struggle, okay? <laughs> I was listening to them on the radio, making sure that I was saying Louisiana correctly, and not Louisiana like we learned in West Texas. All right, so yesterday, I'm over in the Natchitoches area, up around, uh, up and over the river and across through the woods. The, the grand, anyway, uh, and while I was up there, we were making our way to this cemetery that was way out in the country. Oh, man, beautiful country up there. But as we came over the hill, and the hill was probably, I'm going to say, maybe 100 yards long at the bottom of the hill, was a road that turned off, and then immediately, about 10 yards after that, we turned up into the old Methodist church building, wood frame building, the cemetery was behind it. Uh, and so as we came over that hill and started down, I noticed that there were a couple of cars parked on the side of the road and people standing out there beside them. And I thought to myself, wow, this must be a more important funeral than what I was thinking it was if they have people lining the roads. But as it turns out, there was a guy standing there, one lady who was dressed very nicely, another one who wasn't dressed so nicely, and a guy standing there with his cell phone holding it up like this. And I thought, isn't that sweet? He wants to get my picture. The visiting Texas preacher. No, not so. As I got up close to them, I noticed as I looked off to the side, not to the side they were, because they were all focused on the other side of the road there, just a two-lane road. You know how some of those things are. Oh, there's not much space there. And so because we were coming off of a hill, just off of the shoulder of the road, it dropped down 20 or 30 feet easily. 
So as we came past them, I looked over to the side, and all I could see up in the trees at the bottom of that 20 was the taillights and the trunk of a vehicle that at moments before had gone off of the road and hit a tree down there. Now, I was third in line. There was the, I guess, fourth in line. There was the escort who was a sheriff in a car, and then there was the hearse, and then the family, and then me. And my first response was, I wonder if they need help. Duh, they went off the road and hit a tree. Somebody needs help here. But I noticed that these other people were just standing there. There was nobody, as far as I could see, down there helping. And so I had a dilemma. Do I leave the funeral, which is what I'm there in the first place for, I'm the only one prepared to do what I'm supposed to do over there, and go help these people, or do I just keep going? There was that part of me, that internal struggle that said, okay, what do you do here? Now, I happened to know at that point that I was preaching this sermon. And in my mind, I thought, and the priest goes by the other side and goes on about his business. So you know what I did. I went on the other side and I went in about my business. Now, as we're down at that cemetery doing the funeral service, probably 200 yards from where that car was, after about 10 minutes, all the emergency vehicles started showing up. In my heart, I was in that car with that person wondering how they were doing, but in my head, I was trying to be with this family trying to help them with what they were going through. What do you call that feeling that I'm trying to explain to you? See, in English, we have all kinds of things. We can talk about pity for people. When, when you're at home watching television and, and those things come on with the animals, you know, the pets that are abused, and, you know, you know right before you change it, what do you think? What is the emotion that you have? Pity, sometimes we have empathy for somebody. That means basically, oh, I feel your pain, brother. Jesus uses the word compassion here. Verse 33, the central word, the word that towers above the landscape of the whole parable. It's what sets the Samaritan apart from the religious people. It's the word compassion. There's several elements of this word that I want us to be sure and get today. First of all, it is a word that in its own connotation, the way it's used, is a consuming kind of an emotion. And I don't want to be, you know, like gross or anything. Well, I do kind of want to be gross because I just like being gross. But uh, in this case, I'm going to try to temper it down just a little bit. The word here that Jesus uses in the New Testament is a word that means uh, guts. It really is a collective term. It refers to the liver and the heart and the lungs and the entrails and everything that's part of the inside of who you are. That's the word picture that this particular word gives us because the Greeks knew that there was something about us, there was something inside of us that would be so moving at the central part of who we are that they had to label it somehow. And so they come up with this word that we call compassion. Splagnizo, if you just end the Greek. The entire inner part of who you are that drives you. That's another element to this. Two other ones. First of all, the, I mean, secondly, it's divine. Every time we find this word in the New Testament, it is either used about Jesus or it's used 
by Jesus. It is a uniquely divine kind of application. Jesus is referred to as compassionate. Sometimes it says that Jesus looked out on the crowds. This is Matthew 10, I think it is. Not sure. Uh, He looked out on the crowds and he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He uses it in these parables. This one we'll find again in another place that it's used. It's divine. It's it's tied with who God is. But it's also that that consuming part, that corporate part of us that, that we don't really have a better way to explain it. This is from the inside out. It just bubbles out of me, but it's a God kind of thing. Thirdly, I want you to see that this particular word is always a mobilizing word. Every time it is used in Scripture, somebody who feels it does something. And I see that kind of sets it apart for us. That's one of the places I want to draw a distinction and say just because you are moved internally about something doesn't mean you have compassion for somebody because compassion in this sense thrusts you into the mix. You can't feel it and sit back and say... Wow, that was an interesting feeling I just had. You have to do something with it. Ultimately then what we find is that compassion moves us to ministry. This point of purpose, extending the ministry of Christ. Churches are full of people. And America is full of churches who do things that are labeled ministry, but they're just programs and there's a world of difference. Ministry is driven by compassion. It's the seeing people where they are and knowing I've got to do something about that. Now, that causes me to want to clarify some terminology here. We've had this debate around here for at least 14 months. Uh, and I don't think it's a bad kind of debate. Debate. I think it's actually pretty healthy for us uh, as long as we come to some kind of an understanding, some kind of a conclusion. Uh, just to debate forever doesn't do us any good. We need to come to a conclusion for it as best we can without rushing the conclusion. Here's the debate. What's the difference between mission or missions and ministry. And we've had this debate on lots of fronts. We've had it in committee meetings. We've had it in the office. We've had it in small discussions outside of that. What is the difference, preacher, between missions and ministry? Well, let me give you my belief. Okay? Now, it's my opinion. You don't have to like it. I'm quite fond of it, personally. Now, I'm giving it to you at least for us to get the discussion moving I'm giving it to you, hoping that we can come together and say, okay, let's work with that. Let's let that be our answer. What's the difference between missions and ministry? Here's what I believe holds true biblically and otherwise. Mission, and you can put an S on it or not, missions represents the cause or the call. Ministry is the method to get it done. Missions represents the cause or the calling. Ministry is the method to accomplish the mission. Let me give you some support for that. First of all, just go to a dictionary. I go to teenagers, 
refdesk, R-E-F-D-E-S-K.com, refdesk.com. Give you all kinds of valuable information while you're taking a test at school. Um, <clears throat> I mean, before you take a test at school. And they have a dictionary there, so I went to that particular, actually multiple dictionaries that you can re- uh, reference from there. And at that particular point, uh, I went to this word mission or missions. Here's the definition that fits where we are. A specific task or duty assigned to a person or a group of people. Another one that ties to that is a purpose for which a group of people is sent. Right, let's hang on to that. Let me give you an example or two here. Our space program now is out of the business of the shuttle stuff. And now we're focused on Mars. And I'm hoping that we're going to be able to put a man on Mars because there are several people that I'm going to volunteer for that particular trip. (laughs) In order for us to get to Mars, a number of things have to happen and happen well. They have to be right. They have to operate at a high level. It has to be successful 100% of the time. By the way, if it's not successful 100% of the time, it's not successful. The cause, the mission, is to go to Mars. But how do we get there? Well, that falls under a different category we're going to look at in just a second. But the mission itself, the calling for NASA, is to get somebody to Mars. Okay, The mission, the cause, the call, this is what we're trying to accomplish. So let me just stop for a second and ask, what is the church's mission? Now be careful how you answer that, because there's lots of discussion out there among church people about what our mission is, but we only get our mission, our calling, from the one who established the church, Jesus Christ, and he said, Brian quoted it earlier, All authority is given to me, and then what does he say? You, as you are going, what? Make disciples. There's your call. If that doesn't get it for you, that's from Jesus' own mouth. If you've got a problem with that, you don't have a problem with me. You've got a problem with him. Make disciples. That involves reaching people with the gospel for the kingdom's sake, but by all means it refuses to let us just leave them there. That was two weeks ago, our sermon. But last week in the Evangelize the Lost, we went to another passage. If Jesus doesn't carry enough weight for you, maybe Paul will help you some. When he says in 2 Corinthians, For we are ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors for Christ. What is our mission Make disciples. You with me? I hear you breathing. I just want to make sure that you're really out there, okay? That's our mission. So how do we do that? How do we pull that off? Let's go to ministry. That same dictionary says that ministry is the act of serving. The secondary definition that helps us here. One that serves as a means. It is an instrumentality. In other words, ministry is what we do to accomplish the mission. I think I said that back in this little definition thing. Ministry is what we do to accomplish the mission. 
Now, if the dictionary is not a high enough authority for you, and I hope it's not in matters like this, let's go to the highest authority we can get. Let's see what Jesus has to teach us about this question. So let me just ask you as we go into it, what do you suppose was the mission for Jesus Christ? He said, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, is that sufficient for all of us? Everybody go like this. Okay, whether you like it or not, beside the point, that's sufficient. Because Jesus said, this is what I'm about. To seek and to save that which was lost. All right, if that's his mission, the question is, how did he do that? Now, I want to caution you, if you immediately jump to the cross, then you say that all of the stuff that went before that didn't matter. Okay? On the mission part, we know what his mission was. What was his ministry? Let's do this. Keep your place there in Luke. Go back with me to Mark chapter 1. Now, we all know that Mark is the best gospel of all of the gospels. It just happens to be my favorite. Beside the point that my name is Mark, uh, I love the gospel of Mark because of the way Mark writes it. He is busy. Mark is a gospel for the 21st century American person. He, Jesus is always busy in Mark's gospel. And so much and so that occasionally he'll stop and say Jesus had to take a break. And so he went out into a desolate place where he could be alone for a while. Always busy. The word immediately comes up all the time as you study Mark's gospel. So here's what we get. And I, w- I want you to listen to this. Ministry as Jesus. I'm going to say this to you and I want you to watch for it as we read. Jesus does this. He reaches to the need that people have. He's always inserting himself into a needy situation. So we find in Mark's gospel chapter 1, in verse 14, here's part of that mission or the cause thing. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's a mission kind of a statement. This is what I'm about. This is what you need to do. But then after that, immediately in Mark's gospel, we begin to see him stack up these ministry encounters. Verse 27 and following, we find that it comes into Capernaum and there's this issue about the Sabbath. So let's jump down to verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And they cried out and they talked to Jesus about who he is and what are you doing here? Verse 25, Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. Mission or ministry? Your reluctance is noted. Okay. Verse 29. A summary kind of statement that catches this. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and he lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve him. Why? What was Jesus doing there? Was that about mission or was it ministry? Next verse, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would permit the demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Mission or ministry and it's tied to ministry. Jesus reaches into the need. Here's your homework assignment this week. Work your way through Mark's gospel and note how many times Jesus reaches into the need of people who come into his path. 
and he fills the need. Why? Because he had compassion for them. Now, we could go on to Mark's gospel. I don't have time to do it, so let's go back to Luke real quick and we finish up here. I could take you, if we had the time, to look at what Jesus taught on this. We already see that his example holds the truth, that mission is the cause, ministry is the method. But Jesus points to that in his teaching, too. Remember that passage over in Matthew chapter 5? You're the light of the world. We heard a song about that this morning. Remember what he said with that? But so let your light shine that they may see your good deeds and what? And glorify your Father who is in heaven. The good deeds that we have, the ministry, the reaching into the needs for people by design points them to God. In other words, the way we get to accomplish the mission is through the ministry part. We've got to keep that straight. And here's why. A couple of real quick statements and I'm going to be done here. We started off with this parable. A single concept drives it. That's the word compassion. Compassion drives us to invest ourselves in other people. Don't miss that. If you hurt for somebody and you sit in your house and you think, well, that is just a shame. And you can go on about your business. Whatever else you have, it is not compassion. Because compassion moves us to invest ourselves in other people. And the biblical use of this is that investment has to attach to the mission. Here's why that's important. If all we have is ministry, if we have ministry without mission, then that means that we're a charitable organization. Now, I don't have anything against any charitable organizations, Lions Club, uh, Kiwanis, or whatever all of those service groups are. I'm all for them, okay? But we're not them. The church is not called just to give out charity. We have a purpose behind the ministry. Jesus didn't just go around passing out good deeds to people. He did that, but it always drove them to a crisis of belief. Who is this guy? And then when they find out who he is, then they have a choice to make. That's us. We've got to be invested in our community. We need to be like he did and reach across the sea of need and help people. We've got to do that. But if we do that without mission in mind, then we're just charitable organization. God doesn't have to bless that. You know, we can turn it around. And Baptists have been bad about turning this around through the years. If we have just mission and no ministry, well, then we're just imperialists. <laughs> Let me explain that. Some of the greatest tragedies of history have been when the church was used by the government to go conquer new lands. It's about spreading territory and influence more than it's about taking the good news to people who don't have it. 
we have lots of mission, lots of mission statements anyway, in Baptist life. And to be truthful, we have a lot of ministry in Baptist life as we look backwards. You've got to have them both. You can't have one without the other and be as Jesus was. You can fall off of that horse on either side. So let me give you a practical thing to pray through this week, okay? I'm going to ask you to consider praying this prayer. And the reason I want you to is because I want to see you thoroughly miserable in your Christian life this week. That's not exactly true. It's just probably going to work out that way. Here's the prayer. Lord, please help me to be painfully aware of the need that is around me. Now, that's only half of it, but let me stop there for a second. That's a prayer that says, God, help me to get my eyes off of myself, get my eyes off of the first day of school, get my eyes off a of new school year, get my eyes off of all... Lord, help me to be painfully aware of the need that is around me. For those of you going to school this week, you're going to go into class tomorrow and somebody's going to come in and sit in that classroom and their life is a wreck. And they may have... Who knows what's happened with them this summer? Who knows? Same is true for those of you going to the office tomorrow. We're surrounded by people who are desperate in this life. So the prayer, the first part of the prayer is, Lord, help me to be painfully aware of the need that is around me. Here's the second part. And give me the resources required to reach out in compassion. Now be careful that you don't hear money when I say resources. That may be that. The resources that we need to respond to that call to seeing the need that's around us like that, those resources may very well be courage for ourselves. Kenny made reference to that in his prayer. To see people and know they need a gospel witness from me, they need life, that's a little intimidating sometimes. But it may very well be that it's a situation like what I described at that funeral. The car's on the side of the road. What do you do with that? Be aware of the need. And trust God to provide you the resources to step into the need. Mission, ministry, I say yes. Let's pray. Who is my neighbor? Simple question. Cause Jesus to drive us to the brink of self-control. What I mean by that is we love to control self and our agendas and all of that. But Jesus jerks the rug right out from under us here. Ministry usually doesn't wait for your schedule. You're walking down the road and boom, there it is. What do you do with that? So many of us lock into a religious lifestyle that writes compassion right out of our lives. So, Father, we ask you to change us. That's where we started in praying in this service. If you're going to change anybody, please change me. Lord, you know I hate praying that. Absolutely hate it. Because you like to answer it. 
Father, I know there are people here today who maybe the first time they've understood that you reach out to the need. Father, help them to sense your presence, to hear your call, to respond accordingly. Lord, I know you call all of us to put aside the selfish way of living that marks our lives, calls us to get invested in the community for your sake. Make it so. Drive it home deep for us and shake us up.